This is the We Are Her podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the We Are Her podcast. This is your host, Emily, and I have a lovely guest with us who I will go ahead and let introduce themselves. Hello, my name is Veronica, um, and I just want to start by saying thank you again so much for having me on here and allowing me to share my story um, to whoever's listening today. And um, yeah, I just hope that um, everything I share today can impact some of you and just give you hope. I love that. And um, I have no doubt that those things will be accomplished. Um, Yeah, just by virtue of you being a survivor and sharing your story, it makes a really big difference for folks. So um, thank you for that intro. And with all that being said, um, yeah, we'll kind of get to what this podcast is all about, which is story sharing. And I'll let you go ahead and start um, sharing your story in whatever way makes the most sense to you. Okay, thank you. So, um, yeah, I feel like there's a lot to unpack, but um, I guess it makes sense to just start from the beginnings. (laughs) Um, So I am originally, I was born and raised in Buenos Aires, Argentina, um, by my mom and my dad. Um, And, uh, you know, that was like my whole childhood there until I turned eight and I moved to the the United States. Um, So, yeah, so basically, like, my childhood was pretty, pretty normal, I have to say, in the beginning. Um, my dad was actually an entrepreneur there. He had his own satellite business um, and actually came from a pretty wealthy family because of that. Um, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And um, she raised my my brother and I. I have an older brother. Um, mainly, she was like the, the figure, like the parent figure that raised us in Argentina. And my dad would, you know... He was always busy working, like coming home very late hours. And he actually was a very, very alcoholic. Um, And he was actually my abuser. And so um, things did start um, with me, you know, I guess to to throw the meat out there. Um, My my father is my abuser and he sexually abused me. literally from really early in my childhood. I can't even tell you how old I was because I was so young, Um, all the way until I turned 19. And that's actually shocking to a lot of people right now, I'm sure, um, because it's my whole life, basically. Um, And I didn't speak out until I was 19. Um, And so, yeah, that's like the very beginnings of it, but that's throwing the meat out there (laughs) up front. but in Argentina, you know, I didn't have to suffer so much through it just because he was not home often. Um, but things just changed drastically when I moved to the U.S. because, you know, the economics or the there was like an economic downfall in Argentina. I think it was 2001, 2002, which kind of forced a lot of people to leave or just ended up homeless because all of the um, banks like froze. So people just couldn't even take their money out. And it was a mess. <laughs> so that's where my mom took it upon herself. You know, um, I'm just gonna go to the United States. She was raised here. So we were able to have that opening. And we just she made it so that we packed everything left everything behind. And because my dad had a business there, you know, it, it basically fell apart. Um, and we all came here um, just blindly. <laughs> and so that's where things really turned around like drastically when we moved to the U S. Um, I know that's a lot I impact right there already. So, um, but when I came to the U S I was eight and, um, this is where things just changed because my dad never learned the English language. He, he was actually destroyed because he had other kids with another woman. So I had stepsisters that I only met like once or twice, 
but one of them was 21, 22 at the time, and she died in a tragic motorcycle accident the same year that we moved here to the U.S. And so can only imagine my dad was already an abusive alcoholic, and now that he just got even worse. Um, so all of that transition led to us moving here. And then he, as soon as we got here, he didn't do anything. All he did was drink, blast music all the time at home, um, never even got a job. My mom now had to become the breadwinner. She was working nonstop, like full-time. I think at one point she had two full-time jobs and then it ended up her working a full-time and a part-time just to support as much as she could financially. And um, so that left my brother and I at home with our abuser. And so, That's kind of the picture I was seeing like kind of come t- together. It's like, oh, yeah. it makes sense then that now there's this, you're now stuck at home with your abuser and he kind of has like unbridled access. Whereas before, mm-hmm. you know, there was still some challenges um, or at least some barriers for him getting access because he wasn't home as much. So that makes, okay, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And shockingly, it's such a common, like, I didn't know this, but it's such a common theme where like um, a lot of people are immigrants that come from different countries. And I hear this a lot, you know, the full, the whole family will come here and a lot of the, the dads won't actually work because they had such an entitled, like, you know, such a high position where they come from and then they come here and their ego is in the way and they don't even want to, you know, work even just out of McDonald's to like support their family. Like it doesn't matter. It's a job, you know? And so Um, But that happens a lot in a lot of the abuse cases at home, specifically with incest, um, arises that way because then the man becomes distraught, like they have no purpose. They feel like they have no purpose and whatever addictions or issues they had before just escalates. And so there's that open window, like you said, um, for them to have this access to, which is just disgusting to me to think about, you know, because I'm like, this is my biological father and it's it's not, I honestly feel like it's not talked about enough, um, the topic of incest, um, because it's such, it's just been giving the stigma, you know, of like, oh, let's, that's kind of, uh, like, let's not talk about it. It's like, no, it has to be talked about. And, you know, and the thing is, um, as soon as we moved here and everything, like I was saying, my mom became the breadwinner. Um, I was just starting third grade in this new country. Like I had to learn the whole English language and, you know, it was a culture shock even that at that age on top of having to like understand like, wow, like so now my dad is only home and he's always drunk. He's always blasting this music. And, you know, I, w- I had to juggle literally from elementary school. I was living in this toxic, very toxic environment, which was my home. And um, it, it's like everything, like the really that like I want to say from when I was a child in Argentina is when like the molesting started, right? Um, and then when I moved here, it just kind of escalated to the point where he would find like times or opportunities when my brother wasn't home or in, and my mom wasn't home, and it it was just like you know I'm, I don't want to I don't know how many details to share, but um, it got to the point where he would start touching me and like actually touching the inner like my my genitals and like my breasts, my butt. And there were times where these is, this is what manipulative, like narcissists do. Um, They know exactly how to control the environment so that even if my mom is there and my brother's there, he does these things in a way that it makes them think, Oh, this is how dad loves my kids. Mm -hmm. Right. This is okay. Right. And so disguise is affection. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So he was an expert at making everything seem everything that's abnormal that a father should never be doing. My brother and my mom also saw as, oh, this is how, you know, my mom would say like, this is how my husband loves his kids. This is okay. Right. And so we were all as a nuclear family, just in this toxic, abnormal environment that to us was normal. Right. Um, And so it's just crazy because it, it involved my mom and brother. It, it's like in a way they knew, but they didn't because right. they were in denial just like I was. Right. Well, it's it's so hard when it, that abuse is coming from a primary caretaker 
um, figure. It's, I mean, abuse from anyone is hard and, and confusing, but I think there's an extra layer there. That parent-child relationship, especially as a child, you are hardwired biologically to like, you know, be attached to that parent figure. I mean, that's like, um, yeah, that's, that's nature, you know, as a child. And so like, it becomes so much more confusing than, or normalized, or, you know, the, the, the messages get really confusing. Um, so it's not always just like as obvious as one might think, like, this is right, or this is wrong, especially when it's like, the whole family unit is sort of like keeping this dynamic a secret or ignoring it. It's like, it's so much more subtle. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, over the years, it would just escalate. It was like a gradual, and that's why I say he's like an expert, like manipulator. It's like, he knew exactly. It was like all planned. Like, you know, I'm going to wait until she starts maturing and like escalating things. And it's just, it's just crazy to think about that. That's been my whole life until like literally college. Um, because it got to the point where just, I want to say like when I reached middle school, now it wasn't just issues at the in home, right? You know, we all go through like school crap too. And it's like when middle school came around, that's where I experienced bullying for two straight years. So it's like, here I am having an unsafe home. I'm unsafe outside of home. So it was like, I had nowhere to really escape to, right? It was like, I was just stuck. And, um, you know, I had friends throughout my life, but it was like, because my dad was so strict on not having people over. Like he was also very strict on how long I was outside of the house. You know, it's like everything was controlled. And so let's say even when I was in college, like high school, college, um, in, in high school, this is a whole nother thing, but my freshman year of high school, um, I was still a virgin up to then. He hadn't, uh, fully raped me per se. Um, cause I know rape is a whole bunch of things, but Um, I'm talking, you know what I mean? So, um, yes, like full penetration. So, um, my freshman year of high school, I was still a virgin. Um, and in my mind, you know, I thought until I get married, like I was raised that way, like with my, by my mom grew up in a Catholic uh, household in Argentina. And and then in the U S everything changed. I lost my faith, everything. And so it was like, I, at that point though, I always thought I'm not going to give myself until I get married. And so my freshman year of high school, I ended up meeting this guy who ended up being a gang member and I was raped by him. So now I'm experiencing here, here's the home and here's outside where it's getting worse in both scenarios and and like environments. Um, And at that point, my freshman year is like everything changed. It was like um, I became promiscuous and it was you know, I, I, I've been in therapy since I was 19. And um, what I've learned from that is when anyone gets raped or experiences abuse in any way, um, there's two responses. There's either you become super promiscuous and sleep around, or you become the most prude, like introverted, like closed off person. So I became the extreme of sleeping around. Um, and that's what I was being conditioned to at home in a way by my dad. It was like, my dad was teaching me that love is being taken advantage of. Like it was this false belief of love. And so that's the type of love and quote I looked for outside of the home. And there's like an element sometimes too, with promiscuity after experiencing sexual abuse where like consciously or subconsciously, it's like, I'm going to try and reclaim, you know, my own autonomy. And yeah, there's like this false um, equivalence of like, this is, this is love and this is what this feels good. So I'm going to do it um, as much as I want when I want. And like, um, I think, yeah, being able to like ask yourself, is it, is this actually helpful in serving me? And cause there are elements where I'm like, yeah, you know, you do you and like, and, and that empowerment piece of being able to like reclaim and like, sometimes it's a, a unhealthy coping mechanism. And it's like being able to like figure out which one is which and, yeah, navigate that is really complicated, especially as a young teenager. 100%. No, I so agree with what you said there. Like there's definite, there was definitely that, that thought of like, and, and for me, it was like, it's crazy because my freshman year, it's like outside of the home, I was like, yep, I got raped, right? I could identify that. But with inside the home, I had no idea that this was happening to me. 
Like it was like, I was just living a split life, right? Me in the home, no clue. I thought everything was normal. Me outside of the home. Oh, I know exactly what's happening to me. And so it was like one side of my brain was like, wow, I got raped. Now, like what you just said, I was like, in order for me to heal from this rape, I'm going to sleep with more men because I'm in control of that, right? I can I can choose who and and stuff like that. And so, but it ended up becoming more of like any man that approached me and wanted to sleep with me, I would allow it. And so it was like a fine line of I'm in control, but I'm getting used, right? Um, and so that just it seeped more into like my being, you know, my identity um, until I just, you know, it got to the point where in high school, I just involved myself in so many sports because I knew that was going to keep me outside of the home longest. So it's weird. It's like, I knew it, it was, it's like, it's so hard to explain. It's like, I know that deep down I hated being home because I didn't like the feeling of what my dad was doing to me. Like I hated it. I felt disgusted. I felt like used, but it wouldn't logically in my mind be like, wow, my dad is sexually abusing me. It was like, it's so weird. And so it was but like, so, I just don't want to be home. Yeah. Oh, I can't really tell you why, you know, like, right, right. I, yeah. it feels awful like, to be there, but I'm yes. not but putting language around things is really mm-hmm. scary. And, it is. You know, and it's like, it's one thing to like, kind of know and do what you got to do to stay safe and avoid. And then to actually like put into words, like my father sexually abuses me. That is really intense and scary. So it makes sense as to why your mind is like, nope, don't, we don't want to go there. Yeah. Right. And I'm so glad you brought that up because that just comes to show the power of speaking out and speaking out the specific words, because that's why it took me until I turned 19 to actually understand. Because like you said, deep down, it's like, oh my gosh, like this is happening, but I ha- I don't even know it's, it's that bad. Right. It, 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 the environment to me was always normal because I was conditioned and raised until 19 to think that way and to see it that way. Um, And so all through high school, you know, I tried as much as I could to stay out of the home. I was sleeping around. I was in sports, you know, Um, and at the same time, everything at home was happening. And so it was like um, another factor to that. It was like, since my mom was barely home, I started viewing her as like my hero because as soon as she would come home late at night, it was like, oh my God, my mom's home. My dad can't do anything to me, right? It was like, he can't touch me or do this to me because she's here. Um, at least not to the extreme that, you know, because he still would in many ways. Um, and so it was like, I also developed this view of her of like, she's amazing because when she's home, I'm safe, right? Which was still a flawed <laughs> like view, right? Because I wasn't. And so... um things just really escalated after high school. So it's like, as soon as I turned 19 and started college, um, I actually wanted to go to uh, James Madison university, right? That was like my first choice. And I, since I lived in Virginia, this was in Virginia all, all along. Um, and I actually ended up applying to George Mason because my dad wanted me to go there. So it was all controlled by him. And why? Because it was a 15 minute drive from my house. And so So you could come home. Yep. And so I ended up going there. I lived from home. I would just commute to college from home, 15 minute drive. And that's where things got really, really, really bad. Um, Because at this point I was already conditioned up to 18 to be like, yep, this is where I live. This is how I live. And this is what happens to me every day. Right. And so um, when I actually turned 19, um, I remember this. He, my dad never allowed me to date. So he had no idea about all of the things I was doing outside of the home. And I had so many boyfriends like back to back to back. And eventually I found, I started dating this man that I could honestly say I loved for the first time. Um, and it was a 19. And um, it was at that point that um, my brother found out I was dating him. And he opened his mouth and uh, said something in front of my dad. And then he saw that I posted pictures on Facebook. And at that point, I can't even, it's like when you see a man that's so sick, that is so obsessive with his daughter or whoever they're abusing, any man, it doesn't even have to be a dad. Like they become obsessed with the, the person they're abusing or people they're abusing. But he had so much control over me 
that as soon as he found out another man had me, he everything escalated. It was like every form of abuse you can imagine was then fully inflicted onto me, like mentally, emotionally, like sexually raping me. And it was like he forced me to cut all ties from this man, like took my phone, took deleted all my social media. Like the only people I had access to was my best friend at the time um, who was there through me through everything. And yet she had no idea like this was happening to me because I hadn't told anyone. Um, But people, the people I did have access to, which was only like two or I can't even remember how many. um, It was like I was imprisoned in my own home um, for at 19. And that's when the full rape, like, meaning full penetration, sex toys, like oral sex, like all of that started happening, forced masturbation, like anything you can think of that's the most disgusting, demeaning thing can be done was done to me by my my own father. And it was like every day, three times a day. It was a lot. And, um, I, you know, it's hard talking about it. Um, but I've talked about it so many times, like in therapy and, you know, I had to go, I, I want to get into the trial portion of this too, because I think it's so important. But, you know, whenever I share this, um, the reason I share those details is because so many people live through this, but don't talk about it because it's so hard. Um, and I want to get this vulnerable because I know that people out there currently live this, are living this or have lived this until their adult years, but they live in shame and guilt because they were 18, they were 19, they were adults, right? I can't tell you how many people have asked me in my life, you were 18, you were 19. How did you not know? How would you not realize? Like, are you stupid? Like, I'm like, no, like those people don't understand because if you've been conditioned your whole life. (laughs) You've been groomed from the time you were a child. Exactly. And as hard, you just said it, saying those words out loud are hard. We've deemed them as like dirty and disgusting and like taboo, especially in cases of incest. And it's like, that's an extra barrier to even want to speak out. You know, if it was a stranger, it's hard enough, but your own, within your own family unit, that's really, really hard. And people feel ashamed because a lot of other people are very judgmental and make them feel ashamed. So it's like, you know, that it's not always safe to just speak out because the reaction isn't always going to be supportive. Exactly. Like, yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. Um, So yeah, it's like, um, I think what, yeah, what I was saying is that he was doing all of that to me all at, at 19 and from 19, from the time I turned 19, nine months straight, every single day was to that extreme. Um, and so nine months I say, because at the end of those nine months, um, I was dating now a different man and this is how that came into play. So I was working at a grocery store, like right across the street. Um, again, I hadn't like, he eventually gave me my phone back. So I had access to some of my friends that I would see sometime, but very controlled, right. Very like specific with times. And like, you have to be home by this time, no later than this time. Like, and and between all that, he would do everything. And so to me, I mean, and so at my place of work is where I met this man that he also worked there. And so I would see him all the time because that was my place of work. And I, we started dating and I told him, I can't tell my dad, like I told him up front, like, look, I'm not like, even though I'm 19, I'm not like my dad is crazy. Like, I'm not allowed to date. And so he, one, he thought that was weird. He's like, you're 19. Like, <laughs> so he was an average, like, but awesome, like one of the most amazing people I've ever met to this day. Um, I no longer talk to him because I'm married now, but um, he was like, definitely the, I want to say the first, first love that I felt aside from the other guy that I thought was my first love, but it wasn't. Um, But this guy, he, we started dating, we became friends first. And as he started to get to know me, he knew that I was off. He could just like, there were things that I would say, like different signs or cues that I would say about my dad, right? I would talk about, oh, what I do at home. Um, I had mentioned, and I was careful not to share too much because I knew it was like the family, like the secret, right? It was like, he would tell me, like my dad would tell me, like, you can't tell anyone because this is our secret, right? There's secrets that are outside 
of the home and then there's secrets that are in the home and every family has their home secrets, right? And that's not for anyone to know. And and he would also tell me you also can't tell your mom because she wouldn't understand. She would she would she would miss or she would misunderstand this, you know. And so he would like word it in a way and looking back I'm like even though I was 19, I feel like my my mind was that of like a child, right? It was like so easily like manipulated. And he was doing his damnedest to keep you from having friends or, and like a part of that is because he knew that at some point people might start seeing what was going on. And that's part of the hyper control is like, we got to isolate so that no one can tell what's going on. And it's crazy. Like, because where I worked here in this grocery store, like I said, I literally could walk there. He would grocery shop there and he would come multiple times a day to check on me while I was working. It was like, like I have flashbacks of like seeing him down the aisle, just like pop up and I'm like at work. Right. It's like, it was just all the time, like control. And even to the point where if he'd see me talking to the guy I was dating and he had no idea, he would like be staring and like, tell me he's looking at me, at me, you know? So it's like this fear was instilled in me for like such a long time. Um, like I just lived in fear. Um, and for very legitimate reasons. Because that person, you know what they're capable of, and you have been at the receiving end of their harm. And so, again, a lot of this isn't like conscious. It's like survival. And it's like on the deepest level of your being, you knew you knew like what you needed to do in order to like mitigate like the violence escalating. I mean, the last time that you had had a boyfriend and that got out, that's when shit got really, really bad. And it's because it threatened his power and control. And I thought that was a really interesting, I wanted to touch on that too a little bit about like, oh, like this, to you, to to your father, you were like an object that he had every right to control in any way that he felt like he was entitled to. And then as soon as that power and control was threatened by another man, interestingly enough, who's going to like take his object away, it got really, really, really bad. And so like, those are the cues that you have been conditioned to your entire life. So it's like, you know, on, on, on some level, like what you need to do um, in the moment to like try and avoid getting more harm. That is so well put. Like I actually never thought about it to that depth where it's like, yeah, it's like it threatened his control and like over me. And so that's why it escalated even to a more extreme. So it's like deep down, it's like, I knew that, right. It was like, like you said, I've been conditioned to know, like if I get caught, like with someone, or if I get, if he sees me with this or doing that, who knows what he could do next, right? That was the fear. Like I literally feared for my life a lot of the time. Um, and so it was like, yeah. Um, so what was the point? So you're dating, was, you're dating this new yes. fella. Yep. So I'm dating this new guy and, um, you know, over time, like at work, um, we would have lunch together sometimes. So I, like I said, like, as he got to know me, um, I would start sharing some things that were just off, right? They, they weren't normal, um, per se. Um, like I, I remember sharing, um, not super detailed, but I remember sharing I was in the bathroom and that, um, he had opened the door while I was still in the bathroom, like, like my dad, um, and that like little things like that, like, and he was like, why would he open the door when you're in the bathroom? Like, and so like little, th- he started grabbing onto these red flags until one day he just like stopped me. Like we were in the middle of lunch and um, uh, the guy I was dating, he like just stopped me and cut me off. And I was like, look, I know your dad is doing something to you. You have to tell me right now what is happening or I'm going to go find out myself. And that, because he said, if you don't tell me, I will, it instilled this like fear or, or like not so much fear, but this like push in me like no one had challenged me in that way or made me think like, oh my God, like he's saying my dad, he thinks he's saying my dad's doing something to me. He's not wrong. (laughs) Right. So it made me think it actually challenged me. And I'm like, oh my God, like you're right. And I, that's the first time. And that's the, the first person I told and I spoke out to. And I said, okay, my dad is using sex toys. He's having sex with me. Like everything came out at once. And as soon as I spoke it, I lost it. Like, it was like everything clicked. And I'm like, I have been living this. Like, me, like, I've been living this. Like, and at that point, we just literally, like, left work. We went to my boyfriend's house at the time. And he was like, 
he wanted, he had guns at the time and it escalated to the point where he was like, I'm going to kill it. I'm like, no, okay, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, I you're not going you to pr- protect me, but like, right. we don't need to be bringing guns in the right. Exactly. Like, I was like, no, you're not going to go to prison. Like, I don't want him dead. Let's not do that. So he asked me like, what are you going to do? And the first thought I had was I need to tell my mom. Um, and he was like, and you need to call the cops. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so at that point, um, Literally, I was like, I was still so victimized in my mind and putting myself like last. My it, This was on a Friday. <laughs> my mom was starting a new job on that Monday. And in my mind, I'm like, I can't tell my mom, like, she's starting a new job. I'm going to ruin things for her. Like, how am I going to do that? Like, all these thoughts that like, shouldn't make sense, like, don't make sense because it's such a big deal that of having it to be spoken out right away, like, just came in my mind. Um And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to wait till Monday, but I'm going to tell my mom this weekend, like when I go back that I really need to talk to her, you know, like this is huge. And so I remember like after I spoke out on everything, like I literally was pale. I was like sick, sick, pale, like that whole weekend because I had to wait. And not only that, but I now knowingly had to allow my dad to rape me. Like to the, it it was the most, it's the worst thing I, I, ever had to, like it's just so bad but um do you no- think that's just because like you were kind of instead of like di- like kind of disassociating or com- you were now yes. in this new level of awareness where yes you had to sort of it was like oh I can't ignore this it's ha- like now I'm like more fully present mm-hmm. to what's happening yes I love that you put it that way because that's exactly what it was it I was no longer disassociating yeah. because all of that ta- all of the other times I've become so conditioned that I'm like I pretended I was a piece of meat that I was yeah. nothing else. I was not even in spirit and nothing, you know, I just knew this is it. Right. But now it was like, no, this is me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so after that, it was like Monday came around. I told my mom during your lunch break, I'm coming. Right. And you have to come down and we need to talk. So I remember that day, like she, you know, I drove to her job, she came down and it was like, I, just broke down and I told her your husband like my father he's raping me he's been doing this to me for most of my life like mm-hmm. and um you know and she she was in shock she couldn't believe it like it was like her first response was denial mm-hmm. um so it was like but at that that moment though was so pivotal because she said look you're not calling the cops because I told her oh by the way I have a boyfriend I'm moving out right now and I'm calling the cops like that was it for me um, cause I felt so unsafe and fear, like, so full of fear. And she like convinced me to not call the cops. She was like, you're not calling the cops, but I'll help you move. Right. I'll help you move with your boyfriend. And I'm like, so what, we're just going to drive home and we don't know how he's going to react and leave it at that. And she's like, I'll handle it. <laughs> so now I'm like literally in fear of my life. Cause I'm like, he, if he's capable of this, what if he kills? Like I was literally, I wanted the cops there for my safety. Like, right. Um, but leaving God. is like the ultimate, like, you don't have any more power and control over me. I'm leaving. And like, if it escalated the last time his power and control was threatened, that ultimate gesture, that's, which is actually like when people are, um, victims and survivors, when they're leaving an abusive situation, that's the most dangerous time. Is because, um, again, that person, that abuser is like, oh, my God, I'm losing all I'm losing my power and control. I'm going to escalate and do whatever I have to do to get it back, even if it's the most extreme thing, i.e. taking someone else's life. If that's what I have to do to get it, then they'll often like get that, you know, that extreme. And so it's like, yeah, you knew you knew exactly what you were, you know, facing. And that fear is real. When people say, like, I'm really afraid this person might kill me. We have to listen to that. Because you know better than anyone. You knew better than anyone what your dad was capable of. 100%. And that is so, so true in any given situation. Like, um, But yeah, at that point, we. this is why now I have my faith. Because thank God, um, when we went in that apartment, he was napping on the couch. The whole time, he didn't wake up. I packed my things in like 40 minutes. He didn't wake up. I swear, I was like... If he wasn't napping, I don't know what would have happened. But we, my mom literally in silence, like, helped me pack everything. We left, managed to leave, go to my boyfriend's house at the time. And that's where it, like, hit her. And she just broke down. And she was like, I can't believe what's happening. Like, 
she thanked the boy, my boyfriend at the time, thank you for taking my daughter in. Like, um, so that was just like a huge, just boom change right there. Um, but my mom at this point still stayed with him. My brother was still living with them. And that same day I told my brother too, I was like, Hey, this is your dad. Right. Um, and obviously he has his own like, um, mental conditions and because of everything he he's also been a victim of his abuse not sexually but in many many ways like physically emotionally mentally um so you know the the whole family unit was just shattered um and so it got to the point there that you know two months went by with my mom and my brother still living there and i had to keep meeting with my mom in person to make to convince her that this was happening, that this happened to me. She didn't want to believe it. She she was like, do I believe my husband or do I believe my daughter? <laughs> she didn't know any better. And so it took a lot, it took a lot of work for me. And I didn't want to lose my mom too. I was at that point where I'm like, I know my mom's spirit. I know she's a good woman. And I know she's been just as victimized, not as bad as me, but has been really, really victimized by this man. And I'm not gonna allow him to take her, right? to keep having her. And so I fought for her. I was like, no, no, like I'm, I'm keeping my mom back. And it got to the point where my mom finally snapped out of it two months later and she gave him an ultimatum. She was like, look, I'm either calling the cops on you or I'm getting you a ticket back to Argentina. Obviously he took the ticket. This is where the legal system. Wow. Mom. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. So it was was a mom move right there. Yeah, it was, it was a mom move. It took a lot. Yeah. (laughs) It took a lot of, uh, it was a lot like, cause I think the, the denying of it from her end, like her not believing me for as many times as I would meet with her and tell her was another like trauma on my, on its own that I had to go through. But I knew that if I gave up, I wouldn't forgive myself. Like I knew that if I didn't fight for her to wake up from it, I wouldn't have forgiven myself for that. And so um, she was on her own process of like being victimized by him and trying to come out of the fog. You just kind of came out of the fog a little sooner. Not that that like, not that that, you know, takes away the pain of not being believed by your mother, but it's like, everyone was on the receiving end of this person's abuse. And so everyone was trying to like figure out how the frick to, to get out. Um, 100%. I love that you said that. Yes. Because some, like for the longest time, I was so quick to blame my mom for a lot of this too. And, you know, and that's not good. Like it wasn't healthy for me. It wasn't healthy for her. And so I love that you said that because yeah, both my mom and my brother were part of this receiving end of his abusive, really bad abusive behavior. Um, and, uh, and she was married to him for a long time. So being married to someone like that for that many years, it changes you. Um, so that's why I knew I was like, no, I'm, I'm saving my mom from this man, but he, I'm so glad she woke up from it and, and took that step because it did take a lot of courage from her end. Um, and I'm so grateful for that, but, um, yeah, so he fled basically, well, not fled, but like, you know, she got him the ticket and he went back to Argentina. And this is where the whole legal process started because I want to say two months, maybe three to four months, I think went by from that time that he left. Um, I'm skipping over something major here (laughs) before he left on that plane the night before I knew that I had to confront him. I knew deep down, I was like, if I'm never seeing this man again, Um, I'm not going to live in peace if I don't stand up for my, for my truth in front of him and my mom and my brother, because I never want my mom or my brother to ever have an ounce of doubt that he didn't do this to me. So I knew the only way to do that was confront him in front of them and they could see how badly he was lying because you can tell, you know, when someone's like, so I was like, okay, you know what? It was a hard, one of the hardest thing I had to do was go back to that apartment and with him not knowing I opened the door and he like, you know, such a terrible liar, like manip- like trying to manipulate this whole situation. He goes on his knees and like, he's like, please forgive me. I'm like, for what? Like, why don't you, why don't you tell your wife and, and your son what you've been doing to me? Like for the longest time, like, what did you do to me in every room in this apartment? Like, what did you use? Right. Um, 
and he would say, I hurt you. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say exactly. So I was like, okay, you won't say it. I'm going to say it. So I went in detail about everything he did to me in front of them. And he, he would deny it. He was like, I didn't do that. I never did that. Blah, blah, blah. Um, until the very end, I was like, look, I looked at, I, I seriously wanted to look at this man in the eyes and see if he had one ounce of just, I don't know what to call it. Like, um, any ounce of good in him, <laughs> Because I was like, if he looks into my eyes and doesn't tell me he did this to me, I don't know what kind of evil crap like is inside of him. Because I was like, look, I'm not leaving this apartment until you say that you did all of what I just said to me. You have to say it out loud and then I will leave. And then it took three times. And after the third one, he was like, yep, I did all of it. Little did I know my brother was recording the entire thing. So this is like what I mean by it was all aligned unplanned with how the justice system ended up turning out. Because at that point we had evidence of his confession. And so I didn't plan for that. My brother didn't even, I don't even think he thought of it that way. I I think maybe he did because he's a genius, (laughs) but he was recording the audio the entire time until the very end where he said, yes, I did that. And even after. And so he told me he was recording that as soon as I left, I had like my first full blown panic attack and like fell on the ground. And he was like, I got everything recorded. Right. And I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Um, then the next day he fled, he left <laughs> to Argentina. So then that leads to three to four months go by. And at this point I feel, you know, I, I started seeing a psychiatrist. I got on meds cause I was, I, when I say I was destroyed, I was destroyed. I, this is like so TMI, but I had diarrhea every single day for like three or four months. I couldn't wake up. I would wake up in the middle of the night throwing up at 3 a.m. like every night. Like I was destroyed. I couldn't do anything for myself. And I appreciate your vulnerability with sharing those pieces. I don't think, you know, like normal bodily reactions to trauma, we don't need to be like stigmatizing those. It isn't, I mean, it's maybe unpleasant to talk about, but it's real. I mean, people experience trauma in their body. And I think that piece is not talked about a lot. Like your stomach has a lot to do with um, serotonin and all sorts of really important hormones that regulate your mood and emotions. So when you're in a crisis state, like your whole body can suffer and just kind of shut down. 100%. And it's so true because it's like your body is having to purge of all of this like years or like just what, however long or whatever abuse you endured in whatever form, your body has to release that. Like you've been suppressing that for so long and it's your body's way of letting go, right? Just like we need to spiritually or in whatever way mentally let go of things, our body needs to let go. And if we don't allow, like in that process, sometimes you can't control. Like it's just your body saying, I have to let go of this. (laughs) And so it was months of that, (laughs) which honestly, for a lifetime of crap, like it's not bad. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's, that's where the meds at first, like really helped me like to like stabilize because that at that point, you have to be on some sort of medication because you can't function. Um, So four months went by and my body finally started stabilizing. And I remember being back with my mom um, in the apartment. And uh, I just had this thought. I was like, okay, this this was in Fairfax, Virginia, you know, very nice area. It's like, I'm like, I want to call the police just so that this is reported that this happened here in this city, in this apartment by my father. That's all I, I thought was going to happen. I was like, I just want this on file. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? A written I record of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wasn't seeking any justice. Like, I didn't even think it was possible because he was all the way in Argentina. I'm like, you know, he's gone. He's out of my life. I just want this reported now and never have to think of it again. So I called the cops that day um, and, you know, they took my report, whatever. And I was like, look, this is what happened for how long my dad did this. They were like, oh, okay, um, we're going to send a detective right to your place. And like, you're going to get a call in like one to two days. Um So next thing you know, the next day I get a call from a detective um, and I'm like, oh my God, he's already calling. He's like, okay, um, if you're open to it, you know, we want to start an investigation. I'm going to actually come to your apartment, take pictures of everything. Do you have any evidence? 
um, any physical evidence of anything. Um, I was like, I'm not sure. I think they throwed, they threw away like all of most of the sex toys. I think it was all of the sex toys they threw away. Um, the only thing left was one package of one and a receipt and the voice recording that my brother had. So there was no DNA evidence whatsoever. Um, so at this point, you know, it just escalated. They came to the apartment, they took pictures, they interviewed me, my brother, my mom, um, all in his office, like, you know, recorded, um, cause they had to get everyone's side of the story of everything. Um, and so at that point it was like, okay, like this is like happening. Um, and I, I didn't know what would happen next or next. And he would tell me like, look, we don't know what's going to happen. We're just trying our best to investigate everything right now. Um, and then I want to say a few months go by and the detective like calls and comes back and he says, look, we're not going to proceed unless we have your yes. Like you have to say yes for us to continue. Yeah. So I was like, okay, what's the next step? And they were like, so we spoke to a couple of attorneys from the state and they're willing to extradite your dad from Argentina. And I was like, what? (laughs) Like, I didn't even... One, I, I think I had heard of that word one time in my life. I'm like, I don't even know what, how. This, <laughs> and so I was like, that's possible. I'm like, yes. I just like, I wouldn't, I didn't even think. I was just like, yes, let's just do this. Let's, let's do it. Right. Um, that's where the process took a long time. So it took five years of me waiting to trial for trial to actually happen. So those five years, cause yeah, it was from 19 and 24 was when I had the trial. I'm 26 now. (laughs) So it was all just in those five years, those five years was like me finishing college, you know, all of this. And it was a lot because the waiting and not knowing and, you know, it was a lot. But so basically they, the first step was they put him in jail in Argentina. So they arrested him there. So he was actually in jail in Argentina awaiting to be extradited for like 11 months, almost a full year over there. And then, um, I forget who is it in the, uh, that does the extraditing. I think the U um, I forget the name of, I'm like, I don't know the FBI. Like, it's one of those government agencies, but, um, yeah. So eventually after those 11 months, they actually went over there, extradited him and put him in jail in the Fairfax County jail, um, awaiting trial or whatever next steps were going to happen. So, What's crazy is the day that he landed in Virginia was when I was moving to Florida. And it's so symbolical to me because it's like, wow, like it's like, (laughs) and I always bring my faith just because it's so strong for me. But it's like, as soon as I, I, I left that state, like God made sure I wasn't even in that land when he landed there. And I'm like, that. And it was like, I remember the day I was driving down with my aunt and grandma to move to Florida, like, and I received like a call from the detective saying, I just wanted to let you know, like, your dad is now in a jail in, in Virginia, in Fairfax, Virginia. And it just like hit me. And I'm like, wow, like, this is happening. <laughs> like, this is about to really happen. Because um, they used all those resources to bring him here. Um, and so at that point, I think we had to wait five months or so. Cause it was, yeah, it, I had just moved to Florida. It was 2019, right? I think it was 2019. Um, I'm like, I'm trying to remember dates. It's so hard for me to remember dates, <laughs> but okay. um, yeah, there's yeah, a lot going on in that it's time. A lot. Yeah. And it was, I want to say June, it was in June. Um, and I remember like at that point they had to get like the plane ticket for me to go back to Virginia And that's where I went back and they were like, okay, so the first thing we're going to try is to have, if you want, we can do a plea deal. So my thought was, you know what, this is the second chance I'm giving him. I'm going to do a plea deal because if he pleads guilty, he would get a lesser sentence if he, you know. And so I was like, look, this is another thing I'm hoping to see if there's any good in him that he would just admit it. Um, but no, he didn't admit to it. Um, so we went to the full trial because if he would have said yes, we wouldn't need the trial. (laughs) So I was literally hoping, please admit (laughs) that you did this. No. So at this point, the whole trial was literally packed. It was 12, the jury of 12, obviously the judge, like the whole experience was a full other level of trauma because 
it was a packed room of strangers, of interns, like learning from my story of like how does the, the legal system, like it was so just like, I felt like a guinea pig. Like I felt like I was just there. And, you know, what I want to share about this is look, there's so many survivors out there that never had justice. And I, I get that. Right. And I know there's so many that wish they would have justice prevail. Right. Um, what I can say to that is, look, I think as long as like you did, the, if you're comfortable, right, if you took that step of calling the police, of reporting it, you did your part. You can't control what happens after that. Like what I was saying, I didn't call the police to actually get justice. I just wanted to report it. But hey, it it, it worked out the way it did, you know, and it's not something I celebrate. It's actually something that now has left a stain in me because of the fact that, yes, that's my abuser, but it's my dad. And so it's, I've always lived with this guilt now. Like I imprisoned my dad, right? I did this to him. And that's a lie, right? It's not me. Like it's, it was out of my control, but, um, and also he did it to himself. Those were the like consequences of his actions, you know, but it's, it's hard when you're so intimately connected to this other human being. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I had to tell myself, you know, yeah, I, I, as long as you know, you did the right thing, right. You did the right thing. You did what you could do. Um, but yeah, this with the trial, um, it, it, it was a four day, I want to say three or four days of, of this, because it was me having to testify my mom, my brother, and they actually got, um, one of my, older friends at the time that I wasn't talking to as much to testify against me. (laughs) So it was so effed up. Like, um, and it it just got to the, and it it wasn't like she was testifying against me. It was like, but she was the attorney, his attorneys had her testify. Oh, and they're really good at like manipulating the, the situation and getting people to say stuff that like paints you in a bad light. And even if that's not that person's intention, like lawyers are like, Ooh, they're slimy. They can. Yeah. yeah. So what really got me about the whole trial is the whole setup. First of all, like my dad, like my abuser was literally right in front of me. Like, obviously, you know, I'm next to the judge, like as I'm testifying, but the the way that it's placed and positioned is the worst way you can. It's the worst thing you can do to someone that's recovering from this trauma because they're literally placing him right there in person in front of me. And he looked like a devil in sheep's clothing. Like he lost all of the weight he had. He looked like this fragile old man, which he did not look like. He used to look like this scary, like, big guy, right? Like, he had a belly. He had this, like, mustache and, you know, like, beard. And it was, like, a completely different picture of him, Um, which also changed things, you know, because if you're someone in the jury and you're seeing this fragile, like, old man and it's, like, you know, and then the way that the attorneys, like, like you said, paint the picture of things, it's, like, the, the hardest part was that the attorneys he had were two women, and the things that they would say to me, like, I'm, I'm, I'm still in awe of the things that they, they would accuse me of being a liar, that I like brought this upon myself, that, you know, it was all these attacks, right? And the whole time I'm there trembling in tears because it's such like a big, like the way that I had to describe the acts in such like detail, to a room of these strangers, like this is like nothing in detail compared to like what I had to say in this courtroom. Um, but that whole legal experience was, was a lot. Um, but honestly, I do have to say I am grateful because I hear so, we hear so many stories of how justice, like how they (laughs) justice never prevails or whatever for these cases. But the fact that this went through and it, it ended up being the way it, it ended up like, I'm like still in awe about it. And I think it's okay for us to like reimagine what justice could look like too. Cause right now it's like you either don't say anything and that sucks, or you have to go through this justice system, which also sucks even if you do get quote unquote justice. And it's like, that's it. Those are your options. And I'm like in awe of you and some of the things that you did for yourself to like get like justice in your own sense and accountability, like confronting your dad, you know, like that was you taking justice into your own hands and being like, this is what I need right now. I'm going to look you in the eye and I'm going to say it in front of my family, you know, like, and so it's like reimagining what justice even means for people. And like, we need more options of like what that can be for people, but I love that you said that because I think if if people learn to really be true to themselves, 
that justice overcomes any other justice. And really, it can even open that door for the worldly justice to actually take place, you know, um, for the legal like justice. So because that's how it ended up for me. Um, and it was like, um, yeah, after like all the test all the testifying and everything, um, the very end was really symbolic that also helped me process a lot because at the end when they, you know, gave the verdict, um, every single jury found him guilty of five felony counts because of every act, different act of sexual act rape. Um, I mean, there was so, like sodomy was one of them, oral sex, like I, I can name, I can't name all of them. Cause honestly I'm like, whatever, but um, it was five felony counts and they sentenced him to 19 years for every year he stole from my life. And so it was like, as soon as that was said, I just felt like it, it, there was no celebration. There wasn't happiness. There wasn't sadness. It was just like, it was like an emotion. I can't even explain. Um, Cause I just knew like, Hey, this is, I know that this is God working, <laughs> whatever comes out of this in his life and my life, I will, I, I accept, you know, and, and it is what it is. Um, but the, what I do rest in peace of, and I'm assured that he can't harm anyone else ever again. And he can't even harm himself. And that leaves me in peace because I'm like, he's meant to be where he's meant to be. He's no longer able to be an addict of alcohol, pornography, or to like hurt any other child. Because in Argentina, like I mentioned, he had other daughters that have kids. And when he was there, he was around nephews and nieces that I have from his side. And that was a big fear of mine. I'm like, you know, I, I would die if some, if he was then doing something to those kids. And, um, I'm at so in peace that he's put away and he can't harm anyone else. And so that's like the whole legal <laughs> process of it. But the effect of that on me today, um, it has helped me grow a lot, but it's been a really, really difficult journey because mind you, this was only two and a half years ago. Um, that all of that, all of that chapter ended and I can say I leave it behind. Right. Um, but I've been doing so much intentional work. Like it's just been therapy, like since 19 to this day, like I'm probably going to be in therapy forever. Honestly, yeah, I think people should too. just be in therapy <laughs> regardless. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, um, it's taught me so much about just like you said, just being true to yourself and like, speaking up to yourself and, and making your own justice, right? It's like, I think it would be amazing for people to just sit down and write, like, what does justice mean to me, right? And just paint that picture, like, for yourself, like, forget the legal system. And the legal system is one of many options, but, like, what does it actually look like? What would it, what, what would it take for you to get some, some sense of peace or, like, closure, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think, I think that's great. It's great. Um, but yeah, that's like, <laughs> that's like most of my story there. <laughs> um, well, first, thank you, like for like you said, that vulnerability and like your, um, your bravery and speaking out and just like, the willingness to share and like, really, yeah, shine light on an issue that thrives in the shadows. Um, and like, if we ever want to see a diminution of like these incidents happening, we have to talk about it, like you were saying. And so I'm just so grateful for yeah, your strength. Um, and I, I would love to ask you more about like, what does right now look like for you? So like, yeah, therapy, but are there other like things that you do on a like regular basis to kind of work towards that healing? Oh yes. Like 100%. Um, thank you for that question. Cause yeah, I, I, a lot of like what I've lived through and I know a lot of what survivors, um, have lived through, um, it really, I've grown a lot in just being present in the moment here and now. Um, it's taken a lot of work because I know with flashbacks and um, just anxiety and over worrying or remembering a lot of the details from the past, it can be hard. Um, but a lot of what I do today, like I'm very strict with my routines because it helps me. I know that's part of the sense of being in control, um, um, but not overly in control. It's like I, I love to have structure in my days, like in the mornings, like what ha ha has helped me heal, especially in rewiring my my brain. Um, I do something called like brain detoxing and it's like um, journaling, like different thoughts, like toxic thoughts that you need to become aware of and to like turn into positive thoughts. And I do that like every day and it's helped me so much. And another thing that I do is like, I love to sing and I play music and 
I recently got married in March. Um, so, <laughs> so moving to Florida was like the best thing that I could have done for myself. And that's another thing, like, if you're still in an environment that was very toxic for you, right? Like where things really happened to you or you were abused or wherever, um, it's so good to start new and just like find a space and a new environment where you can just create your own environment. That's something that I'm huge on right now. Like just making this space for you yours and make it safe for you. Um, like we literally just moved in like to our new place. I want to say like almost a month ago now. And that's everything I've been so intentional on. Like every space has to be safe and like for a specific purpose because it keeps you grounded and it keeps you present, you know, and just grateful for being here today. And we're free, you know, we're free today. So, and you um, deserve to have a little sanctuary. Yes. I think especially for like survivors of, um, sexual abuse in particular, like our bodies don't always feel like safe to be inside. It is like sometimes a horrifying place to be inside your own skin. And so like being able to cultivate a space around you, a physical space around you that feels like a sanctuary, it can, it's like, well, I don't always get to have that in my body, but I can maybe have that in my living room. And then I can settle into my body a little bit more. So it's like, I'm big on like blankets and candles. It's like, it's not about the blanket. It's not about the blanket. It's about like being able to feel like comfy, cozy, safe, you know, in my own space. 100%, 100%. So yeah, it's just making that, that space and that time for yourself for sure. I just think it's so key. Um, And I did want to just go back to what you said about speaking out because one thing that I was processing before um, we got on here is everyone's story is so unique and so different. Right. Um, but the thing is like the more we're able to share our specific and unique story, like someone out there can relate to that, that maybe they weren't able to relate to someone before. And so this is why, like, I like to be vulnerable and sometimes it can be hard, but I keep in mind, like, and, and like, I was just thinking before, like, yes, this is good for myself, right. This is a challenge for me. But anyone that hears that vulnerability, they're able to relate in a deeper level and it can help them like feel more hopeful or come out even if they haven't spoken out because of shame or guilt or whatever they're holding on to. Um, so I just wanted to touch on that power of really speaking out and sharing your story, no matter what your story is. I just think each story is so important and so unique. So I just wanted to reiterate what you had said about the importance of that. No, I really, I can't, I can't agree with you more. And I think there's a so many different ways to share your story that don't have to be so public if that's not like a safe thing for people to do. But I think that that power of language is real and being able to, even if that's just writing it down in a journal, being able to like have a thought, put language around it, like take it and like get it out of your body in some way on a piece of paper or out to another human being or out just speaking it out loud to yourself is like, you know, it's, it helps that process. It helps processing like what happened. Yeah. 100%. Yes. (laughs) And I've used this term before, but like you're kind of getting at this piece. I call it like the gift of going second. So I know for so many survivors, it's, um, which is kind of like how the Me Too movement started as well. It being able to say like, oh, I'm not alone. Me too. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Yes. Um, thank you for saying that because I've been holding it in as well. And like finding safe people to connect with, I think is really, yeah. I mean, you said it so beautifully. You said it so beautifully. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. No, yeah. it's so true. It's so true. Well, I usually like to end the podcast by asking a, one final question, which is just, and I know you've kind of spoken to this a little bit, but I want to be intentional about like creating space for you to say anything that you would want to, to a survivor who might be listening right now. Hmm. What I can say is that, um, you know, looking back, I'm like, I, I as I shared, I've, I've been in really dark places and I was in a very dark place, but never, never lose the hope. I know you may, some of you may be in a place where you just feel like there is no hope and there, there's nothing left for you, that there's no purpose for you. Um, but that is such a lie. Like if you were born in this world, that means you are purpose. And holding on to that because what you live through has purpose um, and your story will impact so many people, but you have to hold on to hope because that's all I've ever held on to. Like there were times where I thought I lost all hope, but today I look back and I'm like, 
if I had lost hope, I wouldn't be here today. And holding on to that fine thread and just remembering that you are purpose. Don't look for purpose because you are that. That's the message I want to give. I love that. Just like by virtue of you existing, you are valuable and you have a purpose because you are alive. And so, yeah. And sometimes instead of looking for like the bigger themes and trying to figure out what it all means, like bringing it back to Mm -hmm. self, that is like, it's like, oh, that's, yeah, that is a nugget to hang on to. (laughs) 100%. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Well, um, yeah, I just want to say thank you again so, so, so much for being on the podcast. This was a really meaningful conversation for me, and I think it will be for a lot of people who are listening. And um, yeah, just thank you so much. I'm still, I often get like tongue tied at the end of episodes because I'm like, (laughs) wow, I have so much to process. I'm just thinking so much about what you said. But I, um, yeah, I'm definitely going to like take it with me through the rest of the day and be thinking about you. And um, yeah. Any, thank you any so final much. words? Yeah. Just to echo you, like, thank you so much. Like, I'm so grateful to to all of you and the We Are Her, like, just movement and everything. Like, your community is just doing such amazing things and allowing so many survivors this this door of opportunity to just share and, and just just thank you. Like, thank you so much for allowing me to share and, this, and creating such a safe space for everyone, really. That's nice to hear. Thanks. <laughs> That's, uh, we're trying. We're trying. I think we're yeah. doing it. And it's moments like you these are. I'm like, yeah, no, we are. I'm yeah. like, we're doing it. We're we doing are. It. You and me. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.